welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in and coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. Always happy to have you. If you're watching us on video on Counterpunch Plus, thank you so much for your continued support. It means the world to us. This is how we keep the lights on, how we keep this Counterpunch project going. If you're listening on the free audio podcast, please do take this time to consider getting a Counterpunch Plus subscription. It helps us to keep Counterpunch going and it gives you access to all kinds of excellent content including this video that I'm doing today also other videos and plenty of articles all of the columns from the former print magazine are available on counterpunch plus including 30 years of archives you can read alexander coburn's old work going back to the 1990s you can read jeff sinclair's old columns and of course all of the latest information the investigative pieces the essays cultural criticism a whole lot more please do consider that subscription it is the way of the world um okay let me turn to my guest today i'm very happy to welcome him back to the show one of the brilliant economic minds that I know of in the world today. Michael Roberts is with us. If you're not a regular reader of Michael Roberts, you really need to be. The nextrecession.wordpress.com is the website. That's the blog. There are just a wealth or I guess there is a wealth of amazing analysis on his blog there. I highly recommend it. Also, I'll just plug the last two books, uh, Engels 200, his contribution to political economy, very interesting book about Engels and celebrating his uh, 200th anniversary of his birth. And of course, World, World in Crisis, Marxist Perspectives on Crash and Crisis, a Global Analysis of Marx's Law of Profitability. And guess what? Marx's Law of Profitability will probably make an appearance in our conversation today. Michael Roberts, welcome back to Counterpunch. Well, thanks for inviting me, Eric, and good morning. Good morning to you. We are recording very early in the morning here on the East Coast in the U.S., a nice, comfortable 10 a.m. where you are. Let's talk very quickly here at the outset about the news that is I guess somewhat breaking the news of the week, and that is, of course, the, uh, the the U.S.'s final exit out of Afghanistan. Humiliation for Biden, if you follow the mainstream press in the United States. Certainly, that is the narrative. That is the way that this is all going in terms of the political discourse. But I want to talk a little bit more concretely and with a real eye towards uh, an analysis here. Talk to me a little bit, Michael, about Afghanistan as an indicator of the decline of U.S. imperialism, it's clearly a symbolic moment, a watershed or a low watermark for U.S. imperialism. You've recently written about this issue, about the decline of U.S. imperialism. Can you talk a little bit about that and how it relates to economics? Yes, well, Eric, um, as you've seen the scenes of uh, the evacuation in Afghanistan, it reminds me being rather an old person of the scenes that we saw in Saigon with the uh, evacuation of uh, people from Saigon as Saigon fell to the Vietnamese army and the country finally united after 30 years of what the Vietnamese called an American war. Uh, the American occupation and attempt to control Vietnam had failed and we've seen a similar result after 20 years of war in Afghanistan. What both events uh, tell us is that, in, that it's not possible any longer for the Americans to dictate what happens in the world order by just the use of a military power. And the reason for that 
I would argue economically is, is we can go way back, way back so 50 years to those times of the towards the end of the Vietnam War to note that the American economy, which is the basis of any domination in the world, uh, up until, up from the Second World War up until the mid-60s, was dominant in the world. America could decide uh, not only the political world order with the establishment of NATO, the United Nations, and so on, but also the economic world order. They had signed an agreement uh, with the British in particular in 1944 called the Bretton Woods Agreement. It was held in Bretton Woods, this agreement, and it laid down the economic world order that then dominated the major economies for the next uh, two decades. Basically, the dollar was fixed to a certain uh, price of gold, and therefore, in the world, if people had dollars, they could reconvert those into amount of gold. So there was a stability provided by a fixed rate of the dollar to gold. And everybody else's currency had to be tied uh, to this process and couldn't really change their exchange rate to take advantage of cheapening their goods in exports unless they got an international agreement with the IMF and so on. So the US was able to dominate the world. It could spread, spend its dollars, which were as good as gold, uh, around the world to buy up uh, assets around the rest of the world and also to sell its goods in dollar terms. It had tremendous power. But this is the issue about a relative decline. As we go through the later 50s and into the 1960s, it becomes clear that countries that were destroyed, their economies destroyed in the Second World War, were making rapid progress in re recovery. So the center of, Ger of a Europe with France and Germany coming forward fast, and then later on Japan coming forward with highly uh, uh, powerful growth in their manufacturing sector, lower costs than American manufacturers could compete, and also uh, in a position where they could start taking a bigger, bigger share of world trade. So they started to uh, export and build up surpluses of dollars, and that meant that the U.S. was placed in a position of having too strong a dollar. Its manufacturing sector was not able to compete, and so they, they had to take action to break this old agreement of fixing the dollar to the gold. So in 1971, President uh, Nixon announced on American TV that he was going to end this dollar-gold standard and allow the dollar to devalue so that American manufacturers to take advantage of uh, cheaper dollar and therefore uh, more competitive exports. But what we've seen since 1971 is that all that's done, despite the, the devaluation of the dollar, that America's relative position to Japan, to Europe, and of course, much later in the last 25, 30 years to China, has deteriorated, both in manufacturing and in other services. And it's only able to maintain its strength economically through its financial sector, through the use of the dollar as, in, as the international reserve currency, not through its uh, productivity, its technology in, in some extent, uh, or its ability to compete in world markets. So we see a decline uh, in the American capital, in American economy relative, not an absolute decline, but relative to these other countries, which means that they've been forced to look for coalitions to try and get things done in the world in their interest, and the costs of carrying out all permanent war, which American uh, imperialism has engaged, been engaged in since 1950. It's been at war all the time. Uh, 
in some part of the world to try and control it, police the world in its interests, is becoming more and more expensive. So they failed in Vietnam. That was a big blow, led to the uh, breaking of the gold standard. And this failure in Afghanistan is another example of the weakness of um, or the inability of American imperialism to po- to impose its will, even with the coalition of the winning over countries around the world, as poor as Afghanistan is. So the costs have been so great that now it's clear that President Biden wants to cut his losses. He has bigger problems ahead. He has the issue of chi- the challenge of China on international trade and technology uh, markets and the issue of China as the major rival to America in the 21st century. It's a complete waste for that for American imperialism to continue in Afghanistan. So this demonstrates, I think, a bit of a long answer, but basically I'm saying is this shows how Afghanistan is yet another milestone on the decline of American imperialism relatively to the rest of the world and to its rivals. Well, that makes perfect sense. But the follow-up question to that is if you could explain a little bit about how profitability plays into this, because you do talk about that in your piece about profitability and the relative decline of profitability and the desire to, uh, you know, extend a period of U.S. hegemony even in the face of a decline in profitability. So can you talk a little bit about that and maybe comparison of profitability for U.S. capitalists in the 1960s in the Vietnam era? versus today in Afghanistan? Yes, well, um, those of you uh, viewers or listeners who do follow my blog know I make a big effort to explain that what's the basis of capitalist uh, production and and an economy is the ability to increase profits for the owners of capital and the means of production. Uh, But what Marx's economic theory shows is that this cannot be sustained and a continual increase in profitability Uh, because the investment in technology and labor and so on eventually produces the situation where there's a tendency for profitability of capital to fall. It's it's the Achilles heel of uh, the capitalist mode of production because it's continually struggling to raise profitability and there's a continual pressure uh, for profitability to fall. And if we go back to the period of of the mid-1960s, that was a peak in profitability for most of the major economies, particularly the U.S., between the period of 1946 up until 1964, is called by many economists the golden age. We had relatively full employment, high production, high investment, and that was based on a very high level of profitability for capital. But that profitability began to decline from about the mid-60s, according to most of the measurements that we can find. So there was a downward pressure on profitability, which made it difficult to continue the struggle to defeat the Vietnamese and other things. And so that led, what I'd said before, to this change in the dollar gold standard as well. And if we look at the measurement, which I show in my recent uh, post, you can see that there was a fall in profitability prior to this 1971 act. And if then we go f- forward to now, we can see that the level of profitability in all the major economies is much lower than it was in the 1950s and 60s. There's been ups and downs. There was a period of rising profitability from the mid-80s up until the end of the 20th century. But since the end of the 20th century, on the whole, profitability has been falling, and particularly in the US, it has declined quite significantly. So the result has been that it's making it more and more difficult for American capital and other capitalists to continue to meet uh, the, the social needs of people, 
investment growth is slow, production growth is slow. GDP growth now on average in the major economies, capitalist economies, is around 2% or less prior to COVID and will probably settle back something like that once this uh, bounce back from opening up after the pandemic uh, has, has dissipated. So that's a low growth rate. Back in the 50s and 60s, it was 4%. Even in the 80s and 90s, it was more like uh, 3%. So we're, the world economy, in capitalist terms, is slowing down. It's not been able to meet the needs of people because productivity is slowing growth in growth and the production is slowing in growth. And, of course, inequalities have dramatically increased. So what is being uh, produced in value is going increasingly to the 1% and to the top part of the of the world's uh, population in each country, and the lowest groups are gaining nothing out of this, both in wealth and income. That is increasingly a crisis for capitalism, but particularly for US capitalism, which has uh, is the most important capitalist economy. If it cannot deliver, uh, then no other country can deliver either. Absolutely, and just a final comment on Afghanistan. One of the interesting things for me is thinking about how the void in Afghanistan will be filled. I've talked for years about the Chinese connections to the Taliban. The Chinese for, for a long time have been establishing formal ties with the Taliban. The Indians have been looking at Afghanistan for mineral extraction and uh, trade routes and potentially pipelines and other things. And so there is also this, this element of sort of um, uh, colonial imperial exploitation, whereby the United States seems to be sort of incapable of exploiting Afghanistan in the traditional neo-colonial sense. And so that raises the question, was that ever the U.S.'s intention? And is that the intention of other regional powers? Well, I think uh, going historically, if we go back to Afghanistan, it used to be a colony of uh, Britain when Britain was the imperialist power of the 19th century. And Britain divided up Afghanistan. It broke it up the original uh, uh, basic tribal areas, groups there, into different parts. And part of Afghanistan ended up in Pakistan when the, the British divided India between the Muslim part in Pakistan and the Hindu part in India deliberately. All these divisions by British colonialism have set all these conflicts up. Uh, if there's anybody to blame for the original uh, mess, which is uh, Southern Asia, then it is British imperialism. But thanks to American imperialism, they've only tried to extend that even further in the 20th century. And uh, during the period, in the post-war period, we've seen various attempts by American imperialism to impose regime change, to bring about uh, governments and states that are in the interests of American imperialism. Yes, they went into Afghanistan probably just to, as it were, crush al-Qaeda, although that was the uh, claim, uh, to get bin Laden and all the rest of it. But in so doing, they also wanted to transform uh, Afghanistan into a state and a regime that will be in the interests of American imperialism. That's been turned out to be totally impossible. Been the divisions in Afghanistan are too great. The opposition of Afghan people to, to being occupied by whoever it is, whether it was the Soviets in the 1980s and uh, uh, the US now has been immense. There's been no support for these puppet regimes that uh, the Americans have set up. What will happen now? Well, it's an open question. My view is that the Taliban too, because they were in power in the late 1990s in Afghanistan briefly, but were then thrown out, this new Taliban regime is going to play it differently, I think. 
I think they're going to look uh, to use those mineral resources you talked about, Eric, which are quite important and have not really been developed in Afghanistan. They're going to get foreign investment to come in and provide them with the funding uh, that they require to maintain stability uh, for their regime over the next decade. And that will probably mean funding from countries like China and Russia who are prepared to offer funding if they can get it. So I see, I see a move for the Taliban not to launch out into some sort of al-Qaeda attack of terrorists to crack across the world using Afghanistan. Quite the opposite. I think they're going to avoid that and they're going to try and build a Muslim state on their lines backed by investment from countries prepared to extract the value that exists in the minerals in Afghanistan. And America will not be playing any role in that. Well, maybe they'll be all down the road. Who knows? Maybe they'll come back and offer foreign investment uh, for the minerals as well, as well to get a share from the Taliban state. But we'll see. I think that's the most likely development in Afghanistan. Meanwhile, the US has to move on to much bigger problems like China. Indeed. And in fact, I think Afghanistan could become one of these uh, theaters for uh, brewing geopolitical conflicts, strategic conflicts between maybe China and India, both of those countries with their longstanding rivalry, including their low intensity border conflict for decades. Uh, that could spill over into Afghanistan as they compete for those minerals. I know both of those countries have been eyeing that for years. But uh, in the interest of time, let's move on very quickly. Before we go to a break, I want to talk a little bit about COVID if we could. Um, the last time you were on was, I, I believe, just about a month after the pandemic started. And right. so here we are, I mean, more than more than 18 months into this. Um, talk to me a little bit about how COVID, COVID has impacted the global economy. I mean, obviously, we understand economic activity has slowed, but uh, a little bit more detail on what it actually looks like. And then the second part of the question is, what impact should we be expecting from not only Delta, but potential variants in the future. Indeed. Well, a year or was it 18 months or so since uh, the pandemic broke, uh, broke out and became a pandemic, was officially declared one, spreading this uh, new uh, virus spreading from China into the rest of uh, the world. Um, it's proved to be, let's say just talk health aspects, but it's proved to be a severe and dangerous virus. That's, it's proved to be the case. Something like three, four, five, or even 10 times more deadly than annual influenza, for those who doubt that. That's the, the evidence that's been shown. And it would have been even worse if there hadn't been containment uh, policies from health systems around the world. Most health systems failed to be prepared for this because their governments have been cutting back on health spending, privatizing health spending, not allowing ignoring warnings about such pandemics, and therefore the pandemic has created uh, severe damage. But at least uh, the emergency measures of lockdowns, social distancing, eventually magnificently through scientific discovery and development of vaccines in, in a short order time, uh, the pandemic has not been as disastrous as it might have been, but it's still been very severe, not uh, from a health point of view. And we now know as with new variants, and it still continues, that the hospitalizations levels have been great. And there's probably millions of people who are suffering permanent damage health-wise uh, from the COVID uh, uh, virus, which is something new. That doesn't happen with influenza. We've got people with what we call long COVID now uh, who are facing permanent problems for their health as a result of COVID. Uh, and it's not over yet. Nevertheless, 
Uh, if we look at it economically, we can see they were forced into lockdowns, socialization, blocking of travel, international travel and so on. That meant a tremendous drop in uh, output, GDP and employment, with millions made unemployed. According to the latest figure, there's 100 million uh, people who have lost their jobs who haven't got it back yet. We know even in the, in the countries like the States and elsewhere, although people are coming back to work, unemployment has not fallen to the same rates before COVID. There are still several millions of people in America and in Europe and elsewhere in each country who have not got their jobs back yet. And what sort of jobs will they get back? We don't know yet. Maybe they won't get them back at all. So there's been a permanent damage. And if we look at economically, it's a real struggle for economies to, when, once they've opened up, to start to grow at the same rates of growth as before. I looked at the Congressional Budget Office uh, forecasts uh, for the US, and even including the Biden stimulus packages and the huge monetary uh, spending that's uh, injections that have been made by the Federal Reserve and other central banks around the world. In the case of the US, the long-term forecast for the US economic growth is between 1.8% and 2% a year, which is actually lower than before the period since the Great Recession of 2008 up to the point of the COVID. So the prospects for the most of the major economies is slow and poor growth as they come out of COVID. COVID has permanently scarred in particular what we call emerging economies. The global south uh, across the board have suffered severely uh, health-wise from COVID and also economically, disastrously so. And many of these countries are not going to come out the slump for, for year after year after year, perhaps if not until and most estimates on average, most of these economies won't return to their previous levels until 2024, unlike countries like the US or Britain, which are returning by the end of this year. That shows the severe damage that's taken place in these countries. That means more poverty. It means permanent unemployment. This COVID impact and the pandemic slump is not going to go away quickly. And who knows whether it will ever restore to the same levels for many countries. And just a final question before we take a break. Um, speaking of that, one of the obvious economic impacts of COVID that was clear to all of us from the very beginning was the disruption to global supply chains. And uh, so my question really here is, um, what has the global capitalist system learned, if anything, from COVID and the disruption that it caused to global supply chains? And has that led to any evidence that you've seen of any kind of reorganization of global supply chains, maybe a reorientation or a redistribution or a uh, growing resilience or anything like that? What effect has COVID had on manufacturing and supply chains? Well, we know, at least in the immediate period, that it was severely, severely disruptive, in, not just in air travel, but container ship transport, all methods of moving goods and uh, providing services uh, internationally. And uh, to use an old cliche, uh, no country is an island anymore. If all Global capitalism is what we have. It is a whole movement of, of inputs and intermediate goods and services and communications is done internationally. No country, not even the United States, can operate autarkically on its own and expect to meet the needs of its people and grow. There has to be international uh, interaction. That's how far capitalism has taken uh, the world, for better or worse, to a 
uh, world economy rather than a series of national economies. But uh, even since the Great Recession, there has been a decline in this internationalization of the of the world economy. As a result, there's been a slowdown in world trade growth between 2010 and up to COVID. And of course, then we had the big slump. Uh, trade is picking up again, but will it be restored? I think you're right to say that supply chains have been damaged and will take some time to recover, but also a lot of governments and uh, companies are thinking about their supply chains. Maybe they cannot rely upon taking all their goods from uh, China, shifting them to Germany to build some more plants, taking them to Singapore, and then finally finally shift, shipping them into the US. That sort of supply chain has broken down, and it may not be the best way for these companies to rely upon uh, building their uh, econ their companies over the next period. So we're going to see a change, a more national nationalist move, in my view, and a shift to supposedly more reliable areas. That will mean a reduction in global growth because that is not the most efficient way uh, we've found to develop uh, production and investment and so on. It's something that a cost is going to be built into trying to provide more reliability. So that's a factor which suggests to me that global growth will be weak once we get out of the pandemic, if we ever do, uh, over the next uh, few years. And wouldn't we also expect a subsequent move from China as China sees many of the uh, powers around the world trying to move away from manufacturing in, in China? Uh, one would expect the Chinese Communist Party and, you know, the economic planners in Beijing to also have a sort of counter move to that. Absolutely. And then the big issue on global supply chains, of course, is built into the rivalry and the battle, the trade and technology war which has been launched by the US uh, against China and the, the impact and retaliation that China is going to make to that. So as we remember, under President Trump, it was started with putting tariffs on Chinese exports, blocking various Chinese companies from operating outside of China, uh, closing down their ability to raise funds and all the other measures, uh, and in particular, to try and curb the ability of Chinese technology companies uh, to become major rivals to the US in the most uh, key areas. The Chinese, this is now going to intensify, intensified under, under COVID, and it will intensify after the pandemic slump is, is over. It's going to be the big issue. Already we know America and Europe is trying to shift, get companies to shift their supply chains out of China for alternatives, whether it's Vietnam, whether it's India, whether it's places uh, even in uh, Africa, rather than China, try and weaken uh, China's uh, dominant role in manufacturing and in other tech in growing technology services. What is the reaction of China? China's reaction is to do, according to their leadership, is that they're now going to look to build all the things that they have taken from other countries in technology and so on and innovation in the past and try to build it themselves. They're, going to, they're dramatically raising the investment in semiconductor chips, in high technology developments, uh, through uh, subsidizing large numbers of state and partly privately owned uh, technology companies in China so that they're in a position to be able to do it on their own. Whether they can do that, given that they still don't have the same technological value-added level that America and Europe has, uh, remains to be seen. But that is the policy. and that that's So it's going to be a more nationalist policy in China uh, in reaction to the uh, attempt to 
confine, curb and contain Chinese uh, economic power over the next 10 years by the allies or the the Americans and their imperialist allies. Much more to talk about. Let's take a quick break. On the other side of the break, I want to talk a little bit about energy and oil, and then I want to talk about those rascally Austrian school economists who we talk about from time to time and, well, laugh laugh at in various ways. But we will talk about that in a few minutes. Uh, On the other side of the break with Michael Roberts, you're listening to Counterpunch Radio or you're watching on Counterpunch Plus. Thank you so much for your support. We'll be right back. chatting with Michael Roberts, go to the website, thenextrecession.wordpress.com. That is a resource that really does need to be in your daily uh, news consumption. Michael Roberts is one of the best economists I know of. And of course, you've been listening to all of this great analysis. And Michael, I want to pick up right where we left off before the break and talk a little bit about oil, because oil is, of course, that commodity, which is so informative for so much of the global economy. So Oil demand obviously dropped off the face of the earth in 2020, considering the lockdowns and everything else. Naturally, as we would expect, it is 
bouncing back as the global economy reopens. Can you talk to me a little bit about oil demand and the political implications of, well, the decline and the bounce back? And then the real question is, over the last few years, we've been talking about a, an oil glut globally, too much oil in terms of the supply. Where do we stand now? Is that problem getting worse? And what do we foresee in the coming year? Well, I think there are two factors driving oil demand. The first, of course, is whether the world economy is growing fast enough to uh, need demand for basically still most of energy depends on fossil fuels, unfortunately. And oil, crude oil supply is key to the generation of energy, both in power plants and transport and so on. But if the world is not growing very fast and continues to slow, have a very relatively slow growth rate, then the demand uh, naturally for oil uh, will grow also most slowly. There's a very close connection between uh, oil demand and global growth. So that's the first factor. And of course, the other factor is the increasing move away from fossil fuel uh, production to generate energy towards renewables and other alternatives, whether it be uh, uh, hydrogen, whether it be natural gas, uh, but also uh, renewables like wind and solar and water and so on. So that has dramatically increased in the last 10 years. Uh, the cost differential uh, for using oil uh, as your basic energy production source compared to renewables, renewables costs have come down sharply. So we're increasingly seeing a move in that direction. And also, to some extent, a reduction in energy intensity, at least in many of the advanced capitalist countries, people or the economies are finding new ways of reducing the energy generated per unit of production. So all those factors suggest that oil demand will not grow very fast over the next 10 or 15 years, uh, even relatively to GDP. So I don't expect the oil price to go up. Um, it's around 60 or 70. It's been as low as 30 or 40. It's been as high as $100 uh, a barrel back in 2014. I think we're much more likely to see by the end of this decade uh, the price of oil going towards that lower level rather than the higher level because of those factors that I've described. Slow global growth, energy intensity uh, being reduced, and the introduction of renewables. It's a prospect for the fossil fuel industry which uh, is not so good, and certainly not for the Middle East cheeks, uh, uh, Saudis and so on, who rely upon that for their production. Everybody is trying to diversify. And of course, there's one other big elephant uh, in the room, and that is climate change and global warming. The pressure is now immense. The position is serious. Unless action is taken to reduce and phase out fossil fuel over the next uh, 10 years, then the world is going to see even worse situations in heat, uh, waves, floods, and other natural disasters, and uh, and so on, as a result of the heating up of the world. So that if capitalist governments don't want to do anything, then that situation is going to arise. But the pressure is on to phase out and reduce uh, fossil fuels as fast as possible. The answer, of course, is to actually phase them out, take them over, take these big oil companies over, phase out fossil fuels, and move and shift workers into producing environmentally safe methods of energy. That is perfectly technically possible, but of course it's against the profitability and interests 
of the big oil companies. And so it will, probably won't be done. But all those factors suggest to me that the oil price is not going to be high over the next 10 years. Indeed, I would agree with you. And the part of the reason I bring it up is because, as you were alluding to in the beginning of our conversation and talking about the post-war economic system that was developed by the United States and this, or, you know, it's called the winners of the war, as it were, the Bretton Woods system and so forth, um, a, a, a major aspect of that whole system in that whole period was the establishment of the modern Middle East. I mean, the, the, the Saudis and the creation of the monarchy and the sort of incorporation of all of these, you know, what we now call these, you know, these, these, these uh, Gulf states, which are basically sort of these fiefdoms run by these families. Um, the entire system, political system that exists in that part of the world isn't based entirely on U.S. imperialism and the extraction of oil. And as that system begins to change, surely we should see massive repercussions in terms of the politics in the region. I don't know what form exactly that would take, but we have, as my friend J.P. Satilli has called it, an empire of oil. And it has been an empire of oil for at least 100 years. And so what kind of a transformation of imperialism will we see as oil gets phased out? Well, these fake kingdoms and sheikdoms that were set up by British imperialism, French imperialism, and, and then supported and developed by American imperialism, arming these uh, families with their grotesque uh, autocratic rule, uh, the horrific stories of, and way in which they deal with dissent, we know, uh, using their oil money to buy arms to uh, provide support for American imperialism and also to suppress the population. They import millions of people from Pakistan, Sri Lanka and other countries to do all the dirty work while the majority of the uh, indigenous population, which is relatively small, don't do much at all. This is These are very weird places uh, in terms of their state, in terms of no democracy and the rest of it. And it's just, as you say, the basis of uh, puppets for the oil empire of uh, world imperialism. But... If it's the case that oil is not going to be uh, the force that it was in developing the world economy in the post-war period in the 21st century, then there's real difficulties for these regimes over the next 10 years. And remember, one of the interesting things is that uh, Americans, uh, the American economy depends less now on Middle Eastern oil because it's developed the shale oil industry dramatically. And actually, oil production at the US, in the US it, domestically is the highest it's ever been based on the uh, horrible way of extracting uh, oil uh, through shale uh, production in, in the US. So that's weakened the position of the Middle East uh, sheikdoms, who remain a bulwark for, for American imperialism. But yes, they are they're standing on on legs, chicken legs of an oil industry, which is going to be weakened over the next 10 years. That is why they're trying to diversify. They're trying to develop new uh, uh, industries in these countries if they can. They're also, they just spend most of their money investing around the world, taking over companies, diversifying in that way, uh, living the life of Raleigh in the hotels of London and New York at the same time. Uh, these regimes, which are a grotesque leftover of the last hundred years, are certainly under threat over the next 10 to 15 years. 
Indeed, and actually the other the other aspect of that is that uh, climate change is making some of these areas potentially uninhabitable. Uh, Qatar and uh, the UAE and some of these places have seen quite literally, uh, uh, you know, temperatures that are not, uh, you know, hospitable to humans. And that will probably only get worse in the coming years. And of course, the other aspect of this too, which falls into this profitability question, particularly for the US, as you were alluding to earlier, is the fact that these are massive, massive buyers of U.S. weapons, not just U.S. weapons, but weapons in general. You're talking hundreds of billions of dollars a year poured into weapons contracts into this region. If the region itself begins to transform, that could also potentially have knock-on effects for aerospace industry, weapons manufacturers, and others. Indeed, and also the geopolitical factor. Remember that the Saudis are conducting with these weapons a vicious war in Yemen, against uh, a section of the Yemeni uh, population and government that doesn't support the Saudis. This is partly religious, but it's a vicious war using American and British-bought weaponry uh, to do that. And remember, it was a section of the Saudi princes that were engaged in this most extreme Muslim form of al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda is a part of the Saudi Arabian uh, elite. Uh, Bin Laden was a member of the Saudi Arabian elite. These people are reactionary in their attitudes politically and so on, of course, uh, the basis of the terrorism. And it's an irony that uh, the Mujahideen, which was supported by the Americans and British to defeat the Soviets in uh, the 1980s in, uh, in Afghanistan, uh, these are the people who have carried out the extreme policies which have led to the terrorist movements around the world and, of course, uh, 9-11 in the end. So... This is the Frankenstein. Well, Frankenstein actually was the person who created the monster. This is the monster that the Frankenstein of American and British imperialism has created in the Middle East. Uh, And it's not going to go away without uh, major disruptions. Absolutely. In the time we have remaining, I want to shift gears and talk about uh, the Austrian School of Economics, because this is, a, I guess, a little bit of an arcane subject for some people. But I think it's worth paying attention to because it does uh, animate, well, at least in the United States, uh, it does animate uh, at an ideological level, some on the far right. It, it, it really does play into some of the uh, conspiratorial corners of the Internet, which see the Austrian school as sort of the, the true essence of capitalism. So let's talk a little bit about that. What is the Austrian school of economics? If you could define that for us, what does it mean? How is it typified? And how is it different from either the neoclassical view of economics and the Marxist view? Well, uh, the Austrian school, as its name tells you, is a group of economists based in Austria in the late 19th century and the early uh, 20th century who developed uh, a view about economics which is based partly in direct reaction towards socialist or Marxist economics. Uh, Their view is that what is uh, that the capitalist economy, or what they prefer to call a market economy, should operate without any interferences from government, from trade unions, from monopolies. We should, if an economy has perfect competition, that means that everybody competes on an equal basis. Companies, they're all small, they all compete against each other uh, to sell their goods on the market. Uh, there's free free markets with transparency. Everybody knows what's going on. There's no interference by government or monopolies and so on. Uh, if we have that, now 
Having said that, no one tells you that that's totally unrealistic, but that is exactly the starter point for the Austrian economics. Uh, it's so unrealistic, it's laughable from the beginning, but there it is. If we had that, then uh, capitalism would work perfectly. Everybody would receive what they deserve. Uh, there would be a free distribution. There would be a distribution of goods and services according to people's productivity. Uh, and more, more than that, uh, the, the world economy or an economy based on that would grow harmoniously. There would be no slumps and booms. There would be no inequality. Uh, it would be a perfection. Uh, perfect competition leads to perfection. Uh, but, of course, reality is not like that. So how do the Austrians explain that? Well, they say that's what should happen, but it doesn't happen because there is interference by the governments, because there are trade unions trying to control uh, the uh, wage levels, because there are monopolies trying to get a bigger advantage uh, through fixing prices and so on. Uh, and above all, uh, they would say that the reason there are booms and slumps is because uh, Governments and central banks are interfering with the money supply. Money will just normally be, the quantity of money produced in an economy will just match the demand and supply of transactions going on in the economy. But if the Federal Reserve or other central banks come along and produce a whole load of extra money over and above what is necessary in order to try and boost the economy or control the interest rate, they distort the economy and that could lead to either sharp inflation in prices because there's too much money chasing too few goods or severe uh, deflation as the uh, as central banks raise interest rates too much let the interest rate find its natural level is the uh, uh, austrian economics view where where this natural level is and how it comes about is not really explained by the austrian economists but if the central banks didn't exist and didn't interfere then uh, economies would work perfectly. And as you know, in the States, but also elsewhere, there is a view that we should abolish the Fed, uh, that the Fed was a conspiracy of monopolists set up in 1912 after a financial uh, panic and controlled by big uh, financiers. And this sort of libertarian view swings into the Austrian view, do away with central banks, do away with government interference in markets, do away with trade unions, ban trade unions. They would, they're opposed to trade unions. Do away with monopolies, break them all up and have this sort of small competition world and then the economies will move smoothly. Of course, if we look at the realism of that assumption, it's nonsense and also, but it has a certain truth and the certain truth is, yes, the interference of the government and the Fed can distort markets, can extend booms and slumps unnecessarily because they make management government management decisions wrong. But the Austrians cannot explain why there are booms and slumps in the first place. Uh, they deny that they would exist without governments and central banks, but that's clearly not the case. The central banks don't decide what happens in an economy. The economy has its own locomotive and motion, which it basically in a capitalist economy depends on the profitability uh, being delivered to the investment by the owners of capital in means of production. Profitability does not appear in Austrian economics. I have to say, Eric, it doesn't appear in most mainstream or neoclassical economics. The word profit, profit and profitability doesn't exist. It's as though there's no profits in the world. And yet, when you read uh, the Wall Street Journal every day, you're told about the profits of companies. This always finds to me amazing that 
uh, mainstream economics uh, just turns a blind eye to the question of the role of profit in an economy. And that's the key point about Marxist economics. We want to, with Marxist economists, look at the question of profit because that is the nature of a capitalist economy. The Wall Street Journal recognizes it, but not mainstream economics. I want to ask you about this term that I think really underpins a lot of the ideological framework of the Austrian school. And I believe, although you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it originates with Joseph Schumpeter and is then popularized by others. And that is the notion of creative destruction and the not, and, and how creative destruction relates to this so-called business cycle. Could you explain the, 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 the concept of creative destruction, how it fits into the Austrian uh, economic worldview and uh, whether or not that holds any water. Yeah, well, Joseph Schumpeter was an uh, economist in the 20s and 30s that took two aspects. He took aspects of Austrian economics and said that it's the interference of government and uh, outside authorities and the central banks which causes booms and slumps, like the Austrians said. But he also took from Marxist economics the view that if there was a slump, a slump could be regenerative of, of an economy. In fact, uh, the argument is that if you have too much overinvestment because uh, Fed Reserve and other central banks have pumped in too much money, there's overinvestment, it causes uh, a, a slump, a crisis, there's a big hangover after this drunken burst of uh, monetary injection, which could have been avoided. But once you have the slump, you can liquidate all the wasteful investment that's taken place, close down unproductive companies, uh, clear away uh, the rubbish, if you might, uh, left in the economy, and then uh, new seeds of growth can come about through this destruction. Creative seeds of small companies coming forward, the entrepreneurs are now free to expand their economy again. So we can take the, the capitalist economy forward. That was Schumpeter's argument. Uh, and in a way, that's similar in some senses to the Marxist view. The Marxist view was that profitability starts to decline. Eventually, there's a crisis in profitability, in profits. There's a collapse in investment and employment. Lots of companies go to the wall. People lose their jobs. Uh, then the, com the stronger companies that survive can take buy up the weaker ones. Uh, the, uh, they can start to grow with a more open market because some of their rivals have disappeared. And then you get a recovery in the economy in, in, through increased profitability, and then people start to get their jobs back. So you get a boom and a slump. So it's a form of creative destruction as well. The difference is, Schumpeter reckoned that what would happen, it all depends on keeping small companies, not allowing monopolies to come in. But of course, in reality, what happens under capitalism is that the big boys eat up the small boys in a period of slump, as we've seen even in the COVID slump. We've seen big companies are the ones that have gained hugely out of this, and millions of small companies are just about surviving, probably will go under in the next year or two uh, as the subsidies disappear. So what we see under capitalism is destruction, yes, a creative revival of profitability, but only to the benefit of an increased concentration of capital from the big big owners. That's the Marxist view. Schumpeter's view and the Austrian view was that it will restore some sort of lots of small competition uh, as long as the, the governments don't interfere.
And can you talk just briefly of the political uh, and historical reason why these uh, this this school of thought came about? Because as you said, it was a reaction to sort of the growing uh, political consciousness of the working class, Marxist economics, and so forth. But it also was very much kind of uh, patronized by the Habsburgs, by the, the the wealthy elites of Europe who wanted an ideological framework from which they could justify their continued existence. I mean. I mean, these are relics of the Holy Roman Empire and so forth, and they were here in the, in the modern world trying to create an economics that justified their position. Indeed. I mean, the, the Austrian school used to meet in Vienna, and they would uh, rail against the idea of uh, socialism and Marxism because that would be in the end of the market. Uh, as far as they were concerned, the market was the only way in which you could run any sort of society, uh, what was needed, a modern society um, should be run uh, by, by companies competing against each other for price, exploiting the working class in order to uh, deliver uh, growth for these companies, and this will produce a better world for all. Naturally, the elite, whether it was monarchs like the Habsburg and others, saw this as an ideology or an economic ideology that was amenable to them because it meant, as you say, keeping the status quo. Uh, and also it provided, it appeared, a strong argument against the growing forces of socialism and Marxism, which had developed towards the end of the 19th century, particularly in Germany and Austria and into the uh, early 20th century. And then, of course, when we get after the Russian Revolution of 1917, and apparently we have a Marxist or a socialist state which is carrying out the policies of Marxism, then the, the barrage of opposition to that state was delivered by the Austrian school. One of the major planks that they pointed forward was that socialism couldn't work because only the market can handle all the millions of transactions that take place every day in uh, buying and selling and moving goods and services around the world. How can a state with just a, with with planners at the top manage all those calculations in a most efficient way surely the market is much more efficient and much more successful than any attempt to plan uh, the economy through the decisions of uh, officials that was the argument of austrian economics which is a powerful one presented in the post soviet period to explain why the soviet union collapsed and that's why it still has a certain resonance amongst people who see um, the Russian experiment as such a failure. Well, and also it the reason I the other reason I bring up that patronage by these uh, aristocratic families and so forth is because it is part of the reason why a hundred years later we're even talking about this stuff because they funded it and spread it around the world with publications and the millions of copies. Ayn Rand doesn't exist without this patronage in the previous generation. Ayn Rand becoming sort of the iconic figure of a lot of this kind of thinking partially because of funding from these sources that printed and promoted this stuff for several generations. So uh, the reason the, the reason we need to talk about the origins of the Austrian school is to explain why it persists for this long, despite the fact that it is utterly discredited. Well, you, you some, as uh, Marx would probably say, uh, ideas don't disappear if there are vested interests behind them. And there are vested interests in preserving the idea that uh, the market works 
uh, without interference and that uh, we could have a world of libertarian small companies working without and that that will produce end, the end inequality and keep a harmonious growth in the, of, of world economies. The proof, of course, is that it just does not do that. And yet vested interests desire this myth this uh, ideology be sustained because it provides, as I say, uh, an argument, a weapon against uh, big government, as some people see it, and also against uh, socialism, which is even more important uh, to the elites. Uh, but ideas don't disappear if there's a vested interest in preserving them. And the uh, grotesque ideas of Ayn Rand and the follows which still exist in the American Congress and elsewhere of those ideas will be there as long as there's support for it amongst certain shadowy sections of the billionaire class in America. Exactly right. Okay, last point, two minutes left. Um, as always, I'm going to ask for some predictions. What are you looking for in the coming months? What are the main indicators you're looking for for the uh, health of the global economy, for your own analysis of where things are going? What are the things that Michael Roberts is looking at and what is Michael Roberts expecting? Well, I expect certainly over the next year to 18 months a recovery in most of the major economies in the world. It's already underway. Uh, the US and uh, parts of Europe will be back to levels of GDP, if that's one measure we want uh, to take, an investment uh, by the end of this year or early into next year as economies have opened up. There's still a huge amount of stimulus, fiscal and monetary stimulus being applied uh, both in the America and in Europe and elsewhere to, to achieve that. But uh, in my view, this is what I call a sugar rush. It's based upon opening up the economy and huge fiscal and monetary stimulus, which is beginning can begin to disappear uh, in most government spending and monetary programs over the next year. The Fed is discussing whether to reduce its monetary stimulus by the end of this year at this moment. Then economies will have to stand on their own two feet. Uh, uh, if you like, as we go into 2022 and 2023. And as far as I can see, nothing shows to me that there's uh, that we're going to see a new boom, a roaring 20s, as some people have said, as a result of the end of the pandemic. Uh, as far as I can see, there's still layers of companies that have got very low profitability, weak, hardly surviving, except through low interest uh, borrowing and loans. They're in no position to expand production. The world, as we've just discussed, has got supply chain problems around. There's increased rivalry between the US and China. Uh, most economies, most major capitalist economies are going to have, in my view, over the next few years, relatively slow growth, as we saw before the pandemic in the period after the Great Recession. It's another leg, I would say, in what I used to call the long depression. Uh, long depression is a period where growth is below the average in investment and in and in productivity and in trade, uh, all those factors have existed since the Great Recession of 2008-9. This pandemic has been a disaster. As we come out and the sugar rush begins to subside, then I think we're entering another leg, leg of the Long Depression. How could that change? That would only change if there was a major restructuring of the capitalist sector of the economy, wiping out loads of small companies, opening up the possibilities for a sharp increase in the level of profitability for those surviving, namely creative destruction, which in other in another term is slump. Uh, so really, capitalism needs another worldwide slump 
by the end of this decade if it's going to have any possibility of really uh, rejuvenating into the 2030s. A gruesome thought. In the meantime, that's something that's a gruesome thought that the authorities are trying to avoid by continually to pump in money uh, to keep some sort of fiscal stimulus. But that just results in very low, feeble growth. That's the state of capitalism in the 2020s. That's a fitting point for us to end. The next recession.wordpress.com is the website. That's Michael Roberts' blog. I go there all the time. You should as well. Get yourself a copy of the books, the most recent one, Angles 200, his contribution to political economy. Of course, also Marx at 200 and a bunch of other books. You can find them all on Michael Roberts' website. Michael, thanks as always for coming and chatting with us at CounterPunch and for giving us your insights today. Thank you, Eric, and thank everybody else for listening and watching, I hope. And listeners, viewers, thank you as always for your continued support, and we will chat again very soon.